show that I love it. I mean, we've got a legacy that follows behind us forever. Teachers have the power to make an impact on our future. Reach for that power. Teach. Find out how by calling 1-800-45-TEACH. Be a teacher. Be a hero. 1-800-45-TEACH. A public service message brought to you by Recruiting New Teachers, the Ad Council, and this station. You know that the ice cream scoop can make a child smile, and that by slowing us down, the traffic light can keep us going. You know that the lawnmower makes life easier, that the blood bank makes life possible. But did you know all these ideas came from the minds of African Americans? Support the United Negro College Fund, because a mind is a terrible thing to waste. Visit uncf.org or call 1-800-332-UNCF. Brought to you by UNCF and the Ad Council.
Good afternoon. You've got Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel, and today I'm so happy to have in the studio with me Deva Sobel. Deva, welcome to Living Writers. Thank you. Happy to be here. Oh, well, thanks for coming to WCBN today. Great. Um, it's October 21st, 2011, and you're in town to read um, at Nicola's. Uh, but this is a pre-taped show. So um, hopefully folks had a chance to hear you there. And, and if not, uh, to catch you maybe somewhere where somebody's listening to a podcast. Where are the other stops in your, your tour, Deva? After here, I'm on my way to Texas. And then mm, Philadelphia, Washington. Yeah. And you just came from Chicago. Chicago. So, yeah. So you're, I'm in constant motion, yeah. <laughs> circling like the earth the every 90 minutes. <laughs> we had to say it, right? right you're right. probably like, that's not the first time. <laughs> no, no, it is the first time oh, anyone no. said that to me. Yeah. Oh, okay. Well, let's let's see how, let's, let's, let's like throw down the corny challenge. We'll see how far we can take it. Okay. <laughs> but Deva, before we go any fur- further, um, I'll read the short bio in the back of your, your latest book, A More Perfect Heaven, How Copernicus Revolutionized the Cosmos. Deva Sobel is the acclaimed author of the New York Times and international bestsellers Longitude, Galileo's Daughter, and The Planets, and the co-author of The Illustrated Longitude. She lives in East Hampton, New York. This right. doesn't say much, does it? it but it, <laughs> it gives us a starting point. Okay. <laughs> but it seems like you fell in love with science from your high school days. It seems like oh, it was even, apparent. Even before that. So even in grade school, I was tracked in a special science concentration cl- class. And uh, my mother was a chemist and my father was a physician. So I had a lot of science around me. And and so and you went to the Bronx High School of, of Science. Of science. Yeah, it's my best academic credential. I read that, that you yeah. had said that. Yeah. So why? What what about it? It's, well, it it seems a like a glamorous school. place. <laughs> it it really was. And the facilities and the teachers were just at the highest level. I took several science courses in college and never had equipment as good as what I'd had in high school, which is incredible to think of. And that's and you went to Bingen, Bingen. I, I went to several colleges because I was a totally lost soul at that stage. I was just interested in everything, and I'd had this long-standing interest in science, but I really liked to write, and so I didn't know what to do about it. Nobody talked about science writing in those days. It was not a designated career path. No. So how 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 do you think you so how did you find your way to that? Because I was I, surprised that you went you jumped away from science. It seemed like yeah, in in yeah. college, and it was really okay because while I was wandering lost, I took Italian for no good reason at the <laughs> I time. I have knows Italian in yeah. <laughs> notes, <laughs> and without that, I I couldn't have written Galileo's Daughter. So because of the translation aspect of the letters, exactly. So I try whenever I talk to students to make them feel better because most students are lost and that college is not trade school. It's really okay. Whatever you study, you'll find a use for it eventually. That That's a great message to, to say, and a lot of the listeners, I think, <laughs> university students, because I think sometimes the pressures are there sure. to even um, to know sometimes in your freshman year, even more. In right, the, right. It's hard to know. But you found a way to actually bring science into your, and marry it with your love of writing. Yes, I was very lucky. I got a job soon after. First, I went to work for IBM as a technical writer, which I hated. The corporate world, I'm afraid, is not for me. So I was going to go back to school. I always loved being in school. I still love being in school. Well, you're uh, always welcome here. Well, thanks. Thanks. So I was going to uh, enroll in graduate school in anthropology and bumped into a classmate who was working for the local newspaper. This was in Binghamton. And she said, there was another opening, and why didn't I come down and try out? So I did. And by the end of the first week, I really felt I'd found where I belonged. And that was the year of the first Earth Day. So I was writing about pollution and conservation and genetic counseling. And I still hadn't heard the term science writing. 
but that's what I was doing. I was on the women's pages. So that had... What do you mean women's pages, Dave? Well, used to have women's pages in the newspaper. I'm 64, so I come from long ago. And that was 1970 was the first Earth Day. Right, right. Right? And then, so you were actually, because you were a a woman writer, you appeared on the women's pages? Yes, where there were things like hints from Heloise and medical advice and... uh, Dear Abby? Nowadays, Dear Abby, we definitely had Dear Abby, but... The women's pages are still with us. They're just called other things like style or home or dining out or, you know what I mean. Yeah. There's, it's still there. It's just not so politically incorrect as it was. And, <laughs> or uh, so sequestered. Maybe yes. It's in the... <laughs> we were really sequestered. We were in a separate room, just the, just the ladies. You mean even in the journal, like in, in, the, in the newspaper, newspaper itself? In the newspaper office, we had a separate room of of the six of us who were the women on the staff. And the good part was I had total freedom to choose feature story ideas. They wanted me to generate my own feature ideas. And so I began writing about these things that interested me. And so you had the opportunity to write about the earth or different, the science? Yeah, yeah, all of that. And interview doctors about medical issues. And it was only later I moved to Ithaca, New York. So I was living near Cornell University. And Cornell had a staff position for a science writer. And so I was that was reading, the first time you said the term. I even heard the term, exactly. Yeah. And then and the New York Times had had somebody covering science. Walter Sullivan, um, there was another writer who had actually been present during much of the Manhattan Project on the grounds that that was secret, but later he was able to write about it. But still, the word or the term hadn't reached me. So I befriended this person at Cornell. I loved the things he was writing about. And within a few months, he was offered a job at the National Science Foundation. And he said, you should come apply for my job. And I did. And that job was a fantastic education. I mean, I I had Hans Bethe and Carl Sagan and Frank Drake and yeah, it was great. How how so when you say that were they they were all on my beat. So that th- those are the, the people you were talking of, to. Yeah. So you, in a sense, put together your own master's graduate school program in science. I'm still in- doing it. Y- yes. Through all the the recent research on mm-hmm. uh, into Copernicus mm-hmm. too. Well, let's let's talk a little bit about how did you? Okay, maybe we'll have to fast forward a little bit from um, from Cornell. Well, actually, well, you know what? Let's not. So then you spend some time at the New York Times, yes, also as a yes, as a science writer, and on the Science Times. It was new then. It was about a year old when I joined the paper. Did they headhunt you from Cornell since they knew you had oh, the no, chops? I was long gone from Cornell by then. I. I had worked for as a freelancer for years. So how did and how did the freelancing work? Because was it about twenty years that you were freelancing? Is that yeah, yeah? That's that's pretty brave in itself. And then or how well, it's did twenty years altogether? It was shorter than that when the Times found me. So, and the Times found me through something I wrote for Harvard Magazine. Everybody at the Times has been a Neiman Fellow at one time or another, and if you do anything on the Harvard campus, it seems, you get the magazine in perpetuity. <laughs> so uh, an editor on the Week in Review had been reading my pieces in Harvard Magazine and called me and asked me to apply for a job. And were, when you were at Harvard Magazine, then, were you also still directing your own, coming up, generating your own ideas for articles? Yes, and- yeah, because I wasn't really on the staff. And so you I pitched the idea. Freelancing, right. Okay, I see. So that's a great freedom to be able to... How did you decide what ideas you were going to pursue? And would you pitch several of them, Deva, and then see which who bit and then pursue the idea? Or were you writing and following these projects? And- it was a mix. It was a mix. Uh, there were things I was interested in. I read a lot of science magazines that would give me ideas. But once the Science Times came along, you really couldn't freelance anymore because the weekly science section got all the same ideas I had 
ahead of me. We were all reading the same source materials. So I had to join them. You know, there was no... <laughs> <laughs> you could be like the lone warrior. No, no. Out there on the... so that was great. Uh, originally, I was invited to try out for a job on the Week in Review. But that I really didn't like that because you were just rewriting what other people had written during the week. And I said that to the editor. But there was also an opening on Science Times. And I was able to get a job in that department. And that that was very challenging. Uh, it's a highly stressful job to work for a daily newspaper. Sometimes I look back, especially now that I write books and I'm so slow, I think, how did I ever do that? You know, go talk to somebody and go back to the office and turn it into an article and move on. <laughs> right, because it almost seems like there's not enough time for you to mull it over. There is fully. Yeah. Sometimes we had a longer time because it's a weekly section. But you also had to write breaking news stories, obituaries. I wrote B.F. Skinner's obituary while he was alive, of course, which was the way you were supposed to do it. That's that's quite... You got to meet the people and interview them. With them knowing that the intention well, was for you said, Yeah, it was a delicate balance. You said that you wanted to write a detailed biographical sketch for future use. That's the and code they word. I usually <laughs> knew what you meant. But still, he was the first one I did that way. And I was so anxious going up there. I felt like the Grim Reaper. How did you prepare for years. it? How did you? Oh, you really had to prepare. Yeah. You had to read everything the person had written, really study their work. And the idea was to try to get six hours of interview time. And that's how they were done. So, um, and and the advice was to ask, to interview the person at home. But Skinner being Skinner, he was very busy. Couldn't give me more than, I don't remember now, it was two or three hours. And you said he looked like the Grim Reaper? No, I felt oh, like oh. the Grim Reaper. <laughs> now I've besmirched his name. No, no, it was but you wonderful. Felt, of course. Yeah, here I am, you know. He was already on in years, and I, here I am writing his obituary. I just... I just was, I felt creepy about it. And, and like, don't keel thing, over tomorrow, exactly. right? Exactly. And the first thing he said to me was, have you come to write my obituary? So I said, yes. And he said, oh, I'm so relieved. You know, one wonders about this. One, one wants to know it's been tended to. So that wow. was great. Or, but he know, made me come to the office because he didn't speak, you know, as a behaviorist. He was very serious about his own theory. And he did not talk to reporters at home. His environment was structured for the work to be done, and the place to speak to reporters was at his office at Harvard, so that's where we met. And while we were talking, a couple of times students came by with this or that question, and he would say, this is Miss Sobel from the time she's here to write my obituary. And the students would blanch and gulp and not know what to say, but he was just <laughs> delighted about it. Well, it's like you know you've really made it somehow if the Times, the Times is, is that, yeah, prepping yeah. for your... Yeah, well, he yeah. must have known that. Yes. And yeah, that's I had had the point. experience of having Eric Fromm die without yeah. an obituary on file. And when that happened, I vowed I would never let it happen again. That was my beat, psychology and psychiatry. So I was responsible for... Obituaries of those. And, and Eric Fromm, did he write Young Man Luther or is it? No, that's Eric Erickson. Yeah. What I'm, okay. He wrote, oh, now I'm going to forget every title. No, that's, no, yeah, no, what's on your nightstand? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I hate that question. Um, <laughs> he wrote a lot of wonderful books. And, and so, but it happened where you had to quick do. Yeah, on, a, on deadline, fast in an afternoon. The lessons we learn, right? Especially yeah. as a science writer. Mm hmm. For the times. We're freelancing. We're going to take a short break. We'll be right back. Today on Living Writers, Deva Sobel is here. A more perfect heaven. How Copernicus revolutionized the cosmos. We'll be right back.
welcome back. You've got Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel, and today on the program, Deva Sobel is here. Um, Deva, thanks again for being here. Thank you. <laughs> and thanks to Brian Delaney for engineering for us, finding the tunes. <laughs> Actually, I've had this strange feeling after listening um, to the, the last piece that we were in a planetarium. Mm. You might hear that music in a planetarium. <laughs> and the first music... The monks chanting is more appropriate to this subject than you would think because Copernicus worked for the Catholic Church and he lived in a community of cathedral canons, men who were living off the church-owned land that was farmed by the peasants. They got a very nice income and they each had an altar. There were 16 of them in his cathedral 16 canons, and they had a uh, an altar where they could celebrate Mass, but they couldn't, most of them couldn't celebrate themselves because they were not ordained priests. I thought that was really curious, and I, I didn't know he had worked for the Catholic Church until yes. I started your book, Deva. And he's often thought, as, uh, thought of as a person who went against the Church by claiming the earth was in motion. And Probably people have that feeling because they know Galileo took the heat for Copernicus from the Catholic Church. But all these things are connected in the story. They all go back to Copernicus's attempt to improve astronomy, just to make the mathematics adhere more closely to an ideal of perfection so that the heavenly bodies were supposed to move at uniform speeds in perfect circles. But if you watch the sky at night, if you really pay attention... Which he was. Yes. But I'm saying of someone today, mm -hmm. nowadays there's so much light pollution and so many other distractions that people don't pay attention to the sky the way he would have. What you see is that things do seem to be turning around the earth. The stars certainly seem to be making a rotation on a daily basis. The sun comes up and goes down. But you also see the moon and its motion, which is different. And the planets move against the background of the stars. But their appearance changes. They get brighter sometimes, dimmer sometimes. And they also seem to change direction. So how do you explain that in terms of everything moving around the Earth? So eventually you come up with a, a system of circles within circles. But the, the reigning theory, which had been published by, well, written out by Ptolemy in the second century and later published in, in Latin, in Greek. Copernicus felt that Ptolemy had not really stuck to an ideal of perfection, that he used devices in his math that, that were playing fast and loose with perfection. <laughs> and that's what he wanted to do, was to bring the math of the planets into a purer state. He never explains why he switched places between the Earth and the Sun. He never says what made him do it, what gave him the idea, but once he did it, many things fell into place. For example, you no longer had to worry about the planets moving backwards because you could explain the backward motion by the Earth's catching up to them on an inside track and passing them. And the speeds, the relative speeds of the different planets all fell into place. Before that, no one really knew the order of the planets. You knew that the moon was the closest thing to the Earth. But after that, it was, it was a toss, especially whether Mercury and Venus came before the sun or after it, or one was in front and one was behind. You couldn't you couldn't know that. When he 
put the sun at the center and arrange the planets, Mercury, Venus, Earth, Mars, Jupiter, Saturn. Saturn was the farthest known planet. They all lined up in order of their speed. And that was a powerful observation. And it made him think that he had actually discovered the true construction of the universe, which was something nobody was supposed to be able to know. It was very godlike. Exactly. And the idea among astronomers was you could come up with a mathematical model that would enable you to predict the position of any planet, time forward or time backward. But you couldn't really know what was actually going on. That was beyond human ability. But he, he clearly began to think that he'd found what was actually going on. And is that why he resisted? Well, was that the occasion for writing the story, making it into a play, where he's not publishing the, what he's found? Um, well, there's a lot of intrigue going on before. <laughs> right. Well, he, when he got this idea... He did try to tell other people about it. and Through letters. Through to, a letter. He, he wrote out the basic idea in a sketch of principles. And he sent it to at least one person, maybe a few more. But that's what mathematicians did at that time, the 16th century. If you had an idea, you wrote to someone else who would understand it. And maybe that person would copy your letter and, and circulate it. it more widely. And that's how people knew what each the other was, was about. So in the, his letter, he said that he was working on a big book that would explain this idea in full detail with all the math. And then there was a great silence for 30 years. But people already knew what he was doing, and they were talking about it not people in general, but people who followed these these things and were capable of understanding the mathematics. Even some Lutherans. Oh, yes. Yes. So uh, Copernicus originally sent out the letter before Luther issued his 95 theses. But by the time, as it, as it circulated, Luther's influence was felt in the Catholic diocese where Copernicus lived because neighboring dioceses began to convert. They were the bishops, threatening. The bishops converted and became Lutheran. And where Copernicus lived, the bishop had grown quite paranoid about this situation and actually passed a law that no Lutherans were allowed in the town. So a young mathematical genius heard about Copernicus's work and decided to take a several hundred mile dangerous, difficult journey to northern Poland to find him, probably not realizing that he would be an illegal alien. How did you find out he... about this person in history? Was it what part of the research? When did he emerge? Well, I found out about him in 1973. That was the 500th anniversary of Copernicus's birth. And there was an article in Sky and Telescope briefly summarizing Copernicus's life and explaining how he had finally been convinced to publish his idea. So this young man arrives, 25 years old, and somehow convinces Copernicus to do what he's resisted an entire lifetime. And I just thought to myself, what a fantastic conversation. What a situation. The old man and the young man, one Catholic, one Lutheran, the other personal preferences that would have divided them, but they come together over this idea. And both taking a great risk. Yes, and they're taking risks, and many risks, and the risks of discovery of the Lutheran and the Catholic town, but also the publication of, a, of an idea that, that may have repercussions neither of them can predict. But they unite over this concept. They work together for two years and then the young man leaves with a copy of the manuscript, gets the book printed in 
Nuremberg. And that's the book that changes the world, that puts Galileo on trial by the Inquisition, that winds up on the index of the prohibited books for two centuries, and that today, if you tried to buy it, would cost upwards of $2 million. Have you have you've read the book? Have you... I have read the book in English translation. I don't recommend it. It's deadly. It's really difficult stuff. Well, his letters were pretty deadly. The letters that he wrote. <laughs> he, was, he did so many things so well. We, we can't fault him for not being a brilliant stylist. Well, well it almost sounded like, I mean, I'm sure when you're putting, articulating your ideas, that would be a different type of writing than maybe one of the letters that I think he was writing to the bishop where he mm. seemed to keep, because he wanted to get out of something. So just backtracking on so many. Exactly. Yeah, well, that, I thought that was quite it's a talent. Funny. <laughs> but the book is, it's it's 95% math. So you're looking at di- letter diagrams and reading about this angle and that arc segment. And it's it's heavy. It's... It's not bedtime reading. Dense. Well, it could be because because it yeah. could send you off. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, let's take a short break, and then when we come back, Deva, would you mind reading some I'd from the book? Um, today on the program, Deva Sobel is here. A more perfect heaven: How Copernicus revolutionized the cosmos. We'll be right back. Welcome back. You've got living writers. If you're just joining us, um, welcome. And today on the program, Deva Sobel is here. Her book, A More Perfect Heaven, How Copernicus Revolutionized the Cosmos. Um, And thanks for being on WCBM FM Ann Arbor, Deva. Happy to be here. Well, it's it's great to think about history in a way where it feels alive, because I loved how you said, um, and I thought, what a great conversation they must have had. And maybe we can talk a little bit. I'd, I'd love to hear some from the book and then... Okay. Well, the, when I thought about the great conversation, my impulse was, they're a play. Yes, that's yes. why this form. Right. Why, yeah. So I wanted to write a play. And in 1973, I didn't have the courage to write a play. But I never forgot this idea. And I finally got around to doing it. And it's very different from what I normally do. And took me a long time to, and many rewrites, to get it about playwriting and how you can't really have Copernicus explaining his theory. That That's just deadly on stage. He has to have it out with this young, impertinent visitor who who's pressuring him to do something he doesn't want to do. And they have to have that fight, and somehow the young man has to win. Or something about the situation has to awaken Copernicus's original impulse to reach out to people with this idea. Because everybody knows the meeting took place. This is a matter of record. The publication of the book is well-documented, where it was, who was proofreading, every step of that is known. But what got said when the visitor arrived in northern Poland, that is completely unknown. So I really wanted to know what they said, and the only way was to try to think it out. To recreate it. recreate it, to try to learn enough about the characters to guess what their interaction might have been. So what did your research look like then? Well, it was, it was reading Copernicus's book. It was reading 
uh, because of the 500th anniversary in 1973, a lot of material got translated into English. So Copernicus left only 17 letters. Galileo had a 1,000. So there wasn't much, but at least it was now all in English, because I don't read German. And um, he did not speak Polish. He lived in a part of Poland that was called Old Prussia, and everybody there spoke German. His family did. Later, when he was a church administrator and he had a lot of interaction with the peasantry, probably they spoke Polish, and he may have learned it. Uh, because he was certainly capable of learning just about everything. He but was a first... medical doctor. He, right, right. He was an economic theorist. He was a he had studied <laughs> canon law, astronomy, mathematics. There seems to be nothing that he couldn't learn. Right. So, um, so I had this idea for a play, and I finally started writing it around 2006, and studying about him, reading about him. Also, was that when you were in Chicago? Like when? Yes, I started in Chicago. I was a writer in residence at the University of Chicago, and uh, Noel Swerdlow, who is one of the best-known experts on Copernicus's math, was at the university, and he was wonderful. We had many talks together, and I read some of the articles he had written. He had done a translation, his own translation, of Copernicus's original letter to laying out the basics of his theory. The early, that early letter. Right, right. Okay. There was another translation that was more widely known, but he had done his own because science historians argue about these things. You know, did Copernicus think about circles as an ideal, or was he picturing actual solid crystalline spheres? that contained the planets. And people are still arguing about those things. So so I worked and worked on the play, and my publisher at Walker had agreed to publish the play, even though they don't publish plays. But because of my history with them and because the topic was true to the types of books I'd written before, they were willing to go along with this new format. But then my editor had a wonderful idea, which was to take all of this research that I'd done and write a book around the play. And that's what this is. It's a strange hybrid creation. So there's a nonfiction narrative that tells the story up to the point of the meeting. Then the play happens. Then I pick up the story as though the play had not been there. And explain what came out of their meeting, how the book got published, and track its influence through Kepler, Galileo, and then quickly to the present day. And does that does that feel true to form, that it feels right, how it's yeah. coming? I really feel that every story has a, an ideal way of being told. And I love the way this turned out. I'm I'm very happy with it. And have you seen, the, has the play been performed yet, David? I've had readings of the play. Mm-hmm. And sometimes when I visit bookstores to talk about the book, the bookstore will bring in a few actors, and we have a we have a couple of scenes read, and I talk about the, I read a little from the book and talk about the story. And that is such fun, because it's something different. And it's bringing it alive It again. does, it brings it alive. Yeah. Well, could we hear some? Okay. Deva? Well, I, it's only me, so I won't read from the play, but I'll I'll read some of the book. The bold plan for astronomical reform that Copernicus conceived and then nurtured over decades in his spare time struck him as the blueprint for what he called the marvelous symmetry of the universe. Even so, he proceeded cautiously first leaking the idea to a few fellow mathematicians, never trying to proselytize. All the while, real and bloody revolutions, the Protestant Reformation, the Peasant Rebellion, warfare with the Teutonic Knights and the Ottoman Turks, churned around him. He held off publishing his theory for so long that when his great book, 
on the revolutions of the heavenly spheres, finally appeared in print, its author breathed his last. He never heard any of the criticism or acclaim that attended on the revolutions. Decades after his death, when the first telescopic discoveries lent credence to his intuitions, the Holy Office of the Inquisition condemned his efforts. In 1616, On the Revolutions was listed on the Index of Prohibited Books, where it remained for more than 200 years. The philosophical conflict and change in perception that his ideas engendered are sometimes referred to as the Copernican Revolution. The motions of the planets captured Copernicus's interest from the start of his university studies. At college, he purchased two sets of tables for calculating their positions and had these bound together, adding 16 blank pages, where he copied parts of a third table and wrote miscellaneous notes. This custom volume and other remnants of his personal library, seized as spoils of the Thirty Years' War, now belong to the University of Uppsala in Sweden. Copernicus more than once explained his attraction to astronomy in terms of beauty, asking rhetorically, what could be more beautiful than the heavens, which contain all beautiful things? He also cited the unbelievable pleasure of mind that he derived from contemplating things established in the finest order and directed by divine ruling. Among the many various literary and artistic pursuits upon which the natural talents of man are nourished, he wrote, I think the ones above all to be embraced and pursued with the most loving care and concern, the most, I'm sorry, with the most loving care, concern the most beautiful and worthy objects, most deserving to be known. This is the nature of the discipline that deals with the godlike circular movements of the world and the course of the stars. Thank you, Deva. It seems that a project like this engenders this intense relationship with your subject in a way. Do you feel like Copernicus is with you or, or a sort of friend? Well, it's it's a little like falling in love. I mean, you... You, I, I can't take on a project like this unless I really feel something for the person or the story because it's a long time to sit alone in a room, and and the people and that the nature of writing right, itself. It's about sitting alone in a room. That's the job description, and to have somebody who is so engaging, so interesting, and he's he's difficult too because. There are so many things you wish he had said. What do you mean, David? Like, why? What gave oh, him yeah, that right. idea? Yeah, that that, that. thing. Yeah, and then you know, three of the letters concern the woman who lived with him as his housekeeper. housekeeper, right? And of course, the bishop accuses him of having a harlot. But was it true? What was their relationship? Nobody knows. So that was something I had to incorporate in well, the play. Well, she's in the play. First, yes, and I I just tiptoed around it. I was afraid of what Copernicus might say to me if he knew I'd impugned him this way. But finally, not finally, as I was writing and rewriting, I often showed drafts to real theater directors. And one of them said to me, You've got to bite the bullet and make him in love with her. If not, there's nothing at stake when she has to go away. So that was very because good. Because why, why, why was he putting up such resistance? Right. Why was, exactly. Then, yes. Why was he resisting? Um, so by writing a book that did not resume anything, just told the story to the best of my reporter's ability in nonfiction narrative, that freed me to rewrite the play yet again and and let the characters rip. 
Because it's you're stepping outside of that right. contract from right. the beginning and end sections of the book, aren't exactly. you? Exactly. And it's clearly labeled. This is a play. Right. And it's the the um, it's your imagination being in the conversation. Right. Right. And I feel it's justified. Because you have Since these there in- is no record of the conversation. And there are ways to figure out what might have happened. Not to figure out what really happened, but to come up with a scenario. Is there a particular moment in the play, Deva, where you feel like you can say, the reason that I had Copernicus say this is because connected to this... Is there anything that's... um, it's so clearly defined as to like to have an evidence in some. Well, some of the lines are from his writing. Some of the so from a letter that you read, or, or from the text of his book, or the text of a letter. Yes. So that that definitely has basis in history. <laughs> but I also gave him a uh, something completely made up, which is a machine that he built probably, well, you have to figure it out as you're seeing the play, but my idea was that he had built this for this woman he loved so that she could understand the theory without having the mathematical background because she would not have been schooled as he had been. And how did you get the idea? Like, how did this machine present itself to you in your imagination? Like, how did it seem right? I saw it as lighting effects, really, that the stage would go dark and you would feel that you were in a planetarium and and the stars would turn around you. But I changed it later so that there really is a machine and the visitor wants to try the machine and he goes into it and there are some lighting effects, but you see him in the machine. Because what I came up with was that he would have arrived expecting Copernicus's theory to be merely a theory, to, to not really have a direct connection with the real world. Like a physical manifestation somehow. And when he finds out that it is a physical manifestation, which he learns as a result of being in the machine, he gets very frightened and upset because this person he thought was a great genius who was going to instruct him and help him with his life problems is probably insane. The path of genius? Well, they work it out. <laughs> <laughs> That's why we had a 500th year celebration. Yes, yes, indeed. <laughs> And so do you have, from this project, Deva, is it something there, is there someone else in, like, to do with the planets or to do with science that you're also, now it's percolating, or since 1973 it's been with you? Is there? Yes, I. there is a next idea. Yeah, yeah. I want to write about, <coughs> excuse me, I want to write about the, women who worked for the Harvard College Observatory in the late 1800s, early 1900s. They were hired as human computers. They did the mathematical work on the observations. They were not allowed to use the telescope, but they did mathematical work. And the director hired them because he thought women would be more careful and cheap. And he paid them about a quarter of what he had paid men to do the same work. But the women's those pages were different exactly. <laughs> it was even before the women's pages. <laughs> well, and and the amazing part. I mean, not only did they do the work and do it well, but most of them went on to do remarkable other things in astronomy, such as become the first female professor at Harvard, become the first female director of a freestanding observatory. So it could then theoretically oh, yeah. touch the equipment. Touch the equipment. <laughs> yeah. Another one devised the classification system for the stars, which is still used. 
another began the work of figuring out a distant scale in the universe, how to tell how far away was another galaxy. Well, then this, okay, so this is the fourth, this is the project, the current yeah. project, the forthcoming book. Mm -hmm. Okay, we're going to take a short break and we'll come back. You're listening to Living Writers today on the program. Deva Sobel is here. Her book, A More Perfect Heaven, How Copernicus Revolutionized the Cosmos. We'll be back. Welcome back. You've got Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel, and today on the program, Deva Sobel is here. A More Perfect Heaven, How Copernicus Revolutionized the Cosmos, um, out with Walker. You mentioned them as your publishers. Um, Deva, how did, how, did it, how did the transition happen from the freelancer being a writer of articles that have sort of a, a limited... Um, lifetime, like what you have to do to get them out there in the world, to writing the books, which it sounds like are projects that take you deeply years. into <laughs> much research, which could take years. Yeah, it does take years. Well, when I learned about the Longitude Symposium that was occurring at Harvard, I asked all the magazines I was working for. I suggested it. Let me go to this conference and write about it. And everybody Why, why did me you down. know? Like, why, why this... Like, what about this? I had met you? the person who was organizing the conference. He was the curator of historical scientific instruments at Harvard. And he was a person of tremendous energy and accomplishment and he was fired up about this symposium what what is his, his name? name is william andrews and he now built a sundial in your yard for yes, you too yes he's no longer the curator of historical scientific <laughs> instruments at harvard but at the time he he wanted to put on this program and he told me it was going to be great and that i should come to it and i thought if if he says it's going to be great it, it really is but even though I was working regularly for six or seven magazines, everybody turned me down. Everybody thought it sounded terribly boring, weird, and esoteric. Weird is always a very good sign. I think it's a good sign, but they weren't going along with me. And I really tried. I tried numerous places. And then well, I had a year's notice to, to work this out. But everyone turned me down. And then, literally two days before the conference, Harvard Magazine, where it started, that was my first person I went to because it was occurring there, well, they called to say there were 500 people on campus to attend this meeting, and they were sure I could find some way to make it interesting. So, could you please drop everything and come up after all? I was living in New York then. So I did, and I'm awfully glad I did. First of all, it was a fantastically interesting event, three days of really good talks and demonstrations. And I was so excited about it. I remember I was writing my article in the car as I was driving home. And then when the article appeared, this publisher, Walker, called me. Uh, the editor is a Harvard alum, and he loved the story and wanted to know if I could expand it to book length. So there I'd spent a year with a failed proposal for a magazine story, 
And now I had a book overnight. It was bizarre. And I did have a lot more material. And because of the excellence of the symposium, I knew all the people in the field. Usually working out the research program for yourself is the hardest part. But here, it had all been established for me. You knew the key figures to contact. I knew the books. I knew everything had come out at this meeting. So that was the quickest thing I've ever done. I mean, that was start to finish in a year. And it was a very short book, which was also the editor's idea, that this was the biography of a scientific instrument, which was a lovely way to think about it. Very helpful. Often, editors have no idea what they want from you. They only know when they see it that that wasn't what they wanted. <laughs> but he was was perfectly clear about what he wanted, and that made my goal clear. And I had a wonderful time writing that book. But again, I never expected it to have the welcome in the world that it had. It was... I'm still stunned by what happened. You know, here was this idea I couldn't even sell to a magazine editor who'd known me for years. And this would have been like the big magazine, right? Like, like what it would be like discover, like what what sort of magazines were you? I shop at too, the New Yorker, um, National Geographic. They were actually interested, but they didn't think there would be enough illustration. So. That was their reason for saying no. I don't remember who else I tried. But anyway, but it, but the book, it's beca- the but book it started became, everything, didn't it? The book became a bestseller. It got translated into thirty some languages. And PBS, yeah, Nova, it was a docu drama on Nova. Then it was made into a movie, a real made-for-TV movie with Jeremy Irons. <laughs> I mean, it just it just went completely over the top. And um, it was great fun, but not what I had expected at all. You know, I was thinking a small circle of friends would read it. And So what that, does that say about science? Right? Like, what, is, what does that say to you then, Diva? I th- what it said to me was that it made the world more interesting to people. Here are these lines you see on maps and globes. They're just kind of a background grid, like graph paper. And who would have thought that they had a deep history, and people had died trying to figure this out. And the story continues even now, because if you have a GPS, that's really it's really the outcome of the marine chronometer. So it made a, uh, it made a connection for people. It gave them the sense that the world was full of interesting stories. I think that's why it worked as well as it did. Of course, it was wonderfully well written, right? <laughs> well, that goes but without saying. I'm, I'm a grown up, and I know that that's not enough. <laughs> and, and so it's so longitude was this moment in time that then it gave you this window into the, the idea of the longer, the, the book length project. And his. Right. And then in doing additional research for the book longitude, I found out about Galileo's daughter. And then I had something gigantic, and I knew it. That was very exciting. How does that happen? Like, when you say that, can you, is there a way to say, like, because uh, you were researching, and did you right, come I across reading, a letter, or what? I was reading, I was in a special library devoted to timekeeping, and it's in Columbia, Pennsylvania. It's the library of the National Association of Watch and Clock Collectors, and... I went to read all the material about longitude and timekeeping. And someone had written a book about Galileo's efforts to solve the longitude problem because he was one of the many famous scientists who had worked on it and failed. And the book was written by an Italian-American, Silvio Bedini, and he included one of the daughter's letters, which he translated himself. And it was the letter in which 